A few days ago, I traveled to San Diego, California. Now, let me preface by saying this before I share what I'm about to share with you. I want to preface with this, that what I'm about to share with you right now is not in an effort to impress you, but to impress upon you that if God was able to do what he did in my life, he can also do in your life. So I hope that today's episode inspires you, empowers you, and encourages you to press on. And so I was flying from McAllen, Texas to Dallas, Dallas, San Diego. And as I was on a very crowded airplane in Dallas, Texas, three-hour flight to San Diego, I had ample time to meditate on many things that have happened in my life. Now, let me rewind 20 years. 20 years back, some of you know my story. Some of you know my testimony. Some of you have heard it in other podcast episodes or you've listened to my TED Talk. For those of you who don't know, 20 years ago, I was a 29, almost 30-year-old moving my family from Mexico to the United States. Now, I was born in the U.S. I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, raised in a small town next to Houston, Texas. But then at the age of 10 and a half, 11 years of age, we moved to Mexico. And I would live there for the next 18, 19 years, pretty much my whole life. Grew up in Mexico. I went to school there, married there. My oldest son was born there. And so close to 30 years of age, I decided to move to the United States, move to South Texas. Now, I did have somewhat of an urgency to move. And the reason was that my wife at the time had been given a death sentence of six months to live. She had been struggling with Hodgkin's lymphoma at that point for about nine years. She had gone through all the different forms of chemotherapy and radiation, and her body had finally become refractory and therefore was not responding well to any of the treatments. And so at age 29, the doctor simply said, there's nothing we can do. Take her home and allow her to live the last few months of her life with her family. It was a tough blow. It was a shock to us. And so I looked at her and I asked, I said, honey, what exactly would you like to do with these last six months of your life? Keep in mind, we were 29 years old. We were very young. And she said to me, I want to move from this city. We were living in Monterey, Mexico. I want to move from this city and go to the States to offer our son a better opportunity at life. And so we did that. We came to South Texas. But before doing that, I had to come to the area to find a job. I, I, needed, I needed to work. 
And so a couple of months before I moved my family over, I came with my father and surveyed the area, which I was not familiar with. Now, keep in mind that I was working in Mexico as a school director. I was a middle school and high school director for a very large private school. And so education ran in my blood. I was a teacher at heart. But I had always had a passion for psychology. And that was my major, was psychology. And so I came to Texas with my father. And we were driving down a road. And several times we had driven down that particular road. And we had passed a particular school that was somewhat on a corner. And I remember coming to a traffic light and telling my father, see that little school over there? It was a private school, by the way, a private Christian school. I said, did you see that school over there? He said, yes. What about it? I said, I kind of like that school. There's something about that place that draws me in, kind of calls my name. <laughs> it intrigues me. Now, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to just come to the U.S. and work in the school system because I would have to go back to school. I would have to get certified. It was going to be a process. So I needed something that I could start right away. And the school probably was not going to be an option. Nonetheless, my father at the traffic light, at a red light, at the corner, he looks at me and he says, well, why don't you stop by, pick up an application and apply for a job? I said, Dad, <laughs> did you did you not read the sign? He says, what about the sign? I said, it says Christian Academy. He says, so what? I said, Dad, I'm not a Christian <laughs> and neither are you. We're not believers. He says, not now, but perhaps you will be. I laughed. We drove off. But upon returning <laughs> down that same road, we were heading back to Monterey, Mexico. My father insisted that I stop. And therefore, I stopped. I pulled over, picked up an application, got home, filled it out a few days later, scanned it. Mind you, this is back in 2001. Scanned it. <laughs> emailed it to the head of school. A few days later, he replied and offered me a, an interview. And so I knew that they had a math teacher opening for the following school year for fifth and sixth grade. And so I could teach math. I could, I could pretty much teach whatever they wanted me to teach. That was not a problem. I was experienced, although I was young. And so I came to that interview that day. I walked into this man's office. He had a PhD in theology and a PhD in anthropology. <laughs> so I walked into his office, shook his hand, sat down. The office was very sterile. His approach was very cold. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, Milton, let me ask you a question. Are you a born-again believer in Christ? I said, a what? A born-again believer in Christ. 
I said, what is that? He said, I'm sorry. Our interview has ended. I said, excuse me? He said, our interview has ended. If you can't answer that question, I can't hire you. And so I got up devastated. I walked out of that office, walked out of that building, walked off that campus. And I told my father as I was driving back by myself, I called him and I said, Dad, you really messed up. You told me to apply that I would be given an opportunity because one thing that I failed to mention was that that day at the traffic light, when my father insisted that I pick up an application, my father put his hand on my shoulder and he said to me, son, I had this gut feeling. I said, what do you mean, dad? He says, yeah, I had this gut feeling. Something tells me that they're going to hire you, that you're going to start out as a teacher, but yet you are going to end up becoming the head of school, the director. Of course, I laughed, but as you just heard, I did pick up an application, did come to an interview, and was devastated. And so I called him and I said, Dad, you really messed up. You encouraged me to do this. Now I'm embarrassed because the first question he asked, I wasn't able to answer. And now I feel demoralized. So my father says, go back again. When I got back home three hours later, he says, go back again. I couldn't understand the reason or the rationale behind his suggestion. But a few days later, I emailed the same man again, and I said, would you give me a second chance? To which he replied, of course. And so about a week or so later, there I am back in my car, driving all the way back to McAllen, Texas. Walked into his office, shook his hand, sat down, it was like deja vu. <laughs> it was like a repeat of what had already happened. But I thought, surely this time, he's going to show me some mercy, some compassion, some grace. And so I sat there and he said, okay, Milton, first question. Are you a born-again believer in Christ? I thought, oh my goodness, isn't this what he asked me last time? And I looked at him and I said, you know that I'm not. I don't even understand what that is. What does that mean? He said, have you ever accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, well, I know of Jesus, but I really don't understand the concept of accepting him in my heart. He says, and therefore, our meeting has concluded. I said, again? He said, yes. And so I got up, this time didn't walk out of the office, I stormed out of the office. I was not demoralized this time, I was irate, I was angry. So I got in my car, complete silence, I was all alone, no music, no nothing, three hours, thinking, why? Why, Milton, did you subject yourself to this situation all over again. And so, got home, called my dad. I said, Dad, it went worse this time. And guess what my dad said? 
Yeah, you're probably thinking it. Yeah. Go back again. I said, what? He said, look, that gut feeling that I had, he says, I, I've kept on feeling that. They're going to hire you and you're going to excel and you're going to, you're going to lead the school to greater things. Well, let me make this long story short. Not only did I go back again, I went back again and again, <laughs> five times. Every time I went back, the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time, not only, not only was he there to ask me questions, but he had more people, whether a board member, a, a experienced teacher, another administrator. And so the fifth time that I walked in, he was sitting there with a group of people. There was probably a total of about six people in that small little office. And he said to me, Milton, we will start as soon as one of our teachers arrives. So a few minutes later, this older woman walks in. There was something special about her. There was a gentleness, a sweet spirit about her. She was a veteran teacher. Later I found out she had been a missionary to Quito, Ecuador for about 20 or so years. She walked with a limp because as a child she had had polio. Nonetheless, she exuded wisdom, love, and peace. And so she sat there and with a smile, she looked at me and she said, Milton, now tell us, what is your favorite story from the Bible? <laughs> and that was like a dagger to the heart, <laughs> mind you. I'd never read the Bible. I had gone to church. I had heard the priest tell stories, but oftentimes I would just zone out during the sermon. I wasn't there. I was somewhere else. But I remembered vaguely a story about this, this, this young man that in Spanish was called El Hijo Pródigo. Now, I didn't know the translation, and so I looked at this lady and I said, I know the name of the story in Spanish, but I don't know it in English. And she said to me, well, what is it? And therefore, I repeated, El Hijo Pródigo. She says, oh, the prodigal son. Now, some of you probably know the story. The prodigal son, he's the one who took his father's riches. He took his inheritance from his dad before his father passed away, and he went to town and he spent it on drinking, gambling, and prostitutes. And ended up spending it all working on a farm, feeding pigs, standing in the mud, hungry, wanting to eat the grain that the pigs were eating. And this was a young man who grew up in a palace who had all the riches, but had frivolously spent all of his inheritance, living, living it up. And so his father, the story goes that the father was outside waiting for the son this whole time. And so the son finally repents from his sin. He asks God the father to forgive him for sinning against him and for sinning against his earthly father. And you know the story, he returns home, his father embraces him, and there's a big celebration because 
the son that had that was lost was finally found and so that's the story of the prodigal son that's the story <laughs> i didn't remember the story i only remembered the name the title and so she says oh yes the prodigal son so what is so particular about the prodigal son that you like <laughs> and i said to her well i guess i kind of identify with the guy i feel like the prodigal son i didn't know what i was talking about in all honesty they all looked at each other and they kind of chuckled and <laughs> pretty much agreed with me. They're like, yes, this guy is probably the prodigal son. And so there I was, again, embarrassed. I felt belittled, demoralized. <laughs> I got up and I thanked them for their time. And I started to tell myself, never, ever, ever come back for a sixth interview, Milton. Don't. Doesn't matter what your dad says. I kept on telling myself, no matter what he says, I'm not coming back. Well, as I was walking out the front door, let me tell you, this lady walked out. She was a tall blonde, about 10, 15 years older than me, about 15, 20 years older than me at the time. She walks to the door and she says, Milton, don't leave. Let me tell you something. She says, the head of school, he is retiring this summer. And so, she says, I'm taking over as head of school. I'm taking over as director. And as I was sitting there, God was telling me, I had this gut feeling. And he was telling me that I needed to hire you, that you are you're the person that I need to hire for this position, that his purpose is for you to be here. And I looked at her and I, I was kind of, she probably noticed that I had this bewildered look on my face. I looked at her and I said, Really? She said, yes. I said, but wait, hold it. But I am not what you want me to be. She says, not yet, son, but you will. I was kind of thrown back a bit and I said, okay. All right, I said, okay, so what do I need to do? She says, I will email you and you come back and pick up an application, uh, a contract, sign it, and in a few months, you'll start your training. And in September, you'll start as a teacher. I was floored. I, I got in my car. I drove back home. I was extremely excited. And about a month later, I signed my contract. And wouldn't you know it, I was moving my family to South Texas. And so I had a job. <laughs> I didn't know how it happened. I was a little confused, a little pressured because I wasn't a Christian. And yet they had hired me. And I remember that we were looking for, this is a side note, and it's a funny story. We were looking for an apartment to move into. And my wife, you know, wanted a nice place for our son to live. And although I knew that I could not afford that particular place that she wanted, it was this white building, this white complex that was beautiful and had a playground and beautiful garden. And it was just, it was what we had dreamed about. And so she says, that's the place. And so I remember stopping, walking into the manager's office and asking the manager who happened to be this very manicured older lady. She looks at me and she says, how can I help you? And I said to her, I said, um, I, I would like an application. Uh, we would like to rent an apartment in this building. And she said to me, before I can give you an application, I have an important question to ask you. And I thought, oh my goodness, here we go again. Mind you, I hadn't lived in the United States since I was 10 and a half, 11 years old. She says, I have to ask you a question. 
She says, how good is your credit? And I said, well, ma'am, I have no credit. I've never worked in the United States a day in my life. I've lived out of the U.S. for almost 19 years, and I'm barely moving back. And she said, well, I'm sorry. The owner of this apartment complex is very particular, and if you don't have credit or good credit, he will not extend an application. And uh, come back in a year or so once you've once you've created, you know, some good credit, and maybe, perhaps, we might offer you uh, an opportunity to move into our apartment building. Again, I was upset. <laughs> Let me tell you, my temper was different back then. I was upset, and I looked at her, and I said, ma'am, how on earth does anyone expect me to create this good credit score if no one gives me an opportunity to rent a place. And she looks at me and she said, well, you know, we have to protect ourselves. We, we, we have a process that we follow. I said, I understand that, but I just signed a contract, my very first contract to work in the U.S. It's going to take me some time to build credit, but I need an opportunity. She said, did you say that you just signed a contract? I said, yes. She says, who did you sign a contract with? Is it for a year? I said, it is. Who did you sign it with? I told her the name of the school, and of course, I said, Christian Academy. In this case, Covenant Christian Academy. She says, they hired you? I said, yes. She says, well, then you should have told me that from the start. When do you want to move in? <laughs> I said, uh, wow, that was fast. I said, why the sudden change? She says, well... If they hired you, I am sure that the interview process was a lengthy one. And if they agreed to have you on their campus working for their academy, that means that you are trustworthy. You are someone that we can definitely trust. Because you're a born-again believer, aren't you? <laughs> Remember the question? I looked at her and I said, of course I am. <laughs> Please don't judge me. Don't judge me at this point. Yeah, I lied. I lied. I said, I am. And so I got in my car and I told my wife, oh my goodness, there are benefits to being a born again believer. Can you believe this? They hired me simply because I'm working for that academy. <laughs> so fast forward. Fast forward, why am I telling you this whole story? Well, I went on to work for the academy. My wife, you know, my wife had a six-month death sentence. Two months after starting uh, at the academy, we were invited to a church, which we attended. Reluctantly, I rolled my wife in in her wheelchair we were in the back of the room, 500 or so church members. And there was a guest speaker. His name was Danny Johnston. He was from Tulsa, Oklahoma. When I say that I was reluctant to go there and to be there, I was. I was standing the whole time. I was ready to leave because I had this image of Christian churches. I had a, a faulty image and this idea that all preachers were hypocritical, that they were out to, you know, get your money. And I had this idea. And so there I was in the back of the room and this preacher comes out and he says, 
God is in the house today. <laughs> that's my King James Version. And that's what he sounded like. And my wife says, did you hear that? He says that God is in the house. I said, sweetheart, seriously? It's a church. Of course he's going to say that. And then he said, God wants you to know that his healing power is in the house today. She said to me, did you hear that? God is, is here and he heals. He's looking at me as he was talking. God is going to heal me. And I said, sweetie, he knows you're sick. You're in a wheelchair. You're feeble. You're weak. It's obvious that he knows. These guys, these guys like to play with people's emotions. But then he said this. God wants you to know that the diagnosis that you've been given, those months that the doctors told you that you were going to live, God wants you to know that he is going to extend your life. And at that point, I fell to my knees. And for about an hour, I cried profusely. I could not get off of my knees and I cried, cried, and cried until I had no tears. And that day, I became the prodigal son. I looked up into the heavens and I said, my God, forgive me. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for not believing. Forgive me, Father. That day was my turning point. That day, that day my wife, my son and I, we accepted Christ in our hearts and we became born again believers. The question that I had failed to ask at my first interview and second and third interview, at all interviews, I finally understood what it meant. That day, we said yes to Jesus and decided to hold on to his hand, make him our shepherd, and allow him to lead the way. Fast forward two years. I was teaching at the school. I was ordained as a pastor. Yes, <laughs> the prodigal son here. Now a pastor two years in. And you're probably asking yourself, what about your wife? Two years later is way beyond six month mark. Well, can I tell you that I was ordained and so was she. Yes, she was still there. And so we were ordained as pastors. Fast forward, we raised 14 foster kids. That was part of our ministry. They lived with us at different times. On top of that, I continued to work at the school. I continued to pastor at the church. A few years later, for a total of six years after having moved to the, to the Valley of South Texas, you've heard my story before, my wife passes away. Now, if you haven't heard the whole story, you can listen to my TED Talk. It's one of the episodes on uh, this podcast, and also you can find it on my YouTube channel. Six years later, she passes away in her sleep, holding onto her pillow with a great big smile. She leaves after taking her last breath at four in the morning. I prayed her to the pearly gates. It was 
a wonderful farewell. And I say wonderful because it was very peaceful. She had been healed from Hodgkin's lymphoma but had developed a rare blood disorder. She lived life to the fullest and at age 44 went on to be with the Lord. She graduated from this world and went to be with her Heavenly Father, her Creator. A year later, as I was now a widower, I had taken the responsibility of becoming a full-time pastor. I resigned from my position at the school. I was raising my son, who at the time was 15. And, uh, and I resigned from the school. And the lady who hired me, the one who believed in me, she blessed me and said, Milton, you know, you've grown and um, I can't hold you back. Do what God has called you to do. And so I resigned and I went to work for the church full-time, Spanish ministry pastor. And 10 months after that, as I was sitting in my office, I was writing down my notes for the sermon. I, I had this, again, this gut feeling, you know? <laughs> Every time I've said gut feeling, it's either my father or me, something happens. I had this gut feeling that God wanted me to come back to the school. And so I spoke to her once again and I said, 10 months later, would you take me back? And she says, if you come back, I will reinstate you as assistant principal. And we would love to have you back. Talk to your pastor about it. I spoke to my pastor. It was kind of tough. It was rough. But I gave him two months to find someone to replace me. Nonetheless, I was still there involved in case they needed me. Well, I was to go back somewhere around June 15th. June 14th, I was at the hospital visiting a church member. And I get a phone call, a frantic phone call from the school secretary could hardly understand comprehend what she was saying but she was she was crying and screaming on the phone and all I could hear was that my boss the one who had hired me had had an accident and the accident happened right outside the school it was a head-on collision and I rushed over to the hospital to find some of her children there they were adults at the time we walked in and the doctor told us that she had been pronounced dead on impact. So, in 2006, I lose my wife. In 2007, I lose my mentor. My spiritual mom, per se. It was a tough, tough blow. Circumstances that I had to deal with in such a short period of time weighed heavy on me. Two days later, I get a phone call from the board of directors. Milton, we want to ask you to, to be the interim head of school for one year just to help us keep the boat afloat and keep the school moving in the right direction. I accepted. I accepted in 2007 to lead the school. Fast forward, fast forward, <laughs> 2022, I am still the head of school. I'm there. It's like home. It's like a part of me. It's a responsibility. The school has grown. And we have together as a team done amazing things. And so, can you rewind a little bit? <laughs> and think back to the day in 2001 when I was at the traffic light. My father had the gut feeling. You're going to start as a teacher but end up leading the school to greater things, well, 
it happened. His words were prophetic. I didn't quite understand them. But the prophecy took years to develop. It was a process, a very painful process, that I had to go through. I was a caregiver to my wife for 15 years. A caregiver to her. And I was able to pray her to the pearly gates. And there I was in 2007, a young, a young man leading an academy, thinking of my father's words in my office, crying, thanking God for his sovereignty. And so why am I telling you this story? Well, I was on the plane to San Diego, right? That's how I started. And so I was thinking and I was crying and thinking, oh my goodness. Well, I failed to tell you why I was going to San Diego. You see, all or most Christian schools are governed by an organization. The organization is called ACSI, which stands for Association of Christian Schools International. And it governs thousands of schools worldwide. It's a global organization. The same organization that set forth certain parameters that back in 2001 uh, would keep me from getting a job <laughs> at the school that gave me a job because somebody had a gut feeling or heard from God. But it was this institution, this organization's you know, boundaries or parameters that would not allow me to get a job. So there I was on the airplane going to San Diego to meet up with the board members of ACSI, the Association of Christian Schools International. You may ask yourself, why, Milton, were you meeting with them in San Diego? Well, because I am part of the board of directors. Yes. <laughs> I'm not saying this, like I said, to impress you. I'm just saying this to impress upon you. That if God did this, in my life, he can do it in yours as well. Just keep in mind, my process to get from point A to point B took 20 years. 20 years. Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000-hour principle. He says that in order to become an expert, it takes 10,000 hours. I would, uh, I would agree with Malcolm Gladwell. That's from his book, Outliers, by the way. I would believe 10,000 hours is pretty accurate. So, don't give up if you're going through a process. If you've heard from God, if you've had that gut feeling, follow it. Even though the valley may be a deep and dark one, follow it. <laughs> you never know where it's going to lead you. All right, guys. Well, I hope that uh, I hope that this testimonial—not much of a teaching today—but I hope this testimonial has inspired you. I hope it has encouraged you, as at as it has encouraged me today. All right. Well, I will see you soon at another episode. God bless you guys. Keep your chin up. <laughs> Stay hope-filled, faith-filled, and expect a sudden move of God. Love you guys in Christ. Bye-bye.